You know, it can start early, but by the time we're in middle school or high school, it comes into full bloom. Clicks, posses, crews, homies, the relational network that we begin. If you're a parent of those age, you know it very well. If you fall in that category as a middle schooler or high school, it is a tumultuous time to navigate what can be your best friend in life in one afternoon by one incident you can become enemies for the next four years you may not learn geometry but you will learn emotional geometry triangulation where three always seems to be a conflict two are great enter a third blows everything apart and of course we're grouped by Association. Are you athletic? Are you academic? Are you popular? Whatever that means. Do you have wealth? Do you not have wealth? Are you a geek? Are you the smartest kid in the class? Are you in the chess club? And these associations follow us really into adulthood. But it's a challenge that we navigate in those years, perhaps that lay a foundation for how we will live in the years to come. Depending on your age, the teenage angst and the rebellious nature has been depicted in movies and books for decades. If you're as old as me or older, you'll remember Rebel Without a Cause, a true classic movie. But the permutations of that film have gone on to things like Cruel Intentions, Ten Things I Hate About You, Mean Girls, the cultic film Donnie Darko, and of course Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And all these films have, I won't even give them the credibility of genre, <laughs> but they have this nuance that they follow. It's almost a paint-by-number storyboard. You've got this teenager who is the main character, and he or she knows everything. They are deeply in love with someone. In fact, they are more in love with someone than anyone has ever been in love in the entire universe. They are either at odds or hate their parents. They loathe authority of all kinds. And authority in these films are depicted as buffoons, as idiots, as out of touch of people that are, they may as well be dead and dying. And in the drama of these films we have now added the spice of vulgarity with comedy of sexual exploitation of murder of violence and it's depicted by beautiful actresses and actors and the impact of such films at the worst case scenario is that teens who watch them believe that's a reality the lesser damage is they watch them and they identify with them and they can quote all the lines and there's some identification with some part of that story which should on the one hand break our hearts and the other teach us it's a different world. Yet in those stories the believer in Jesus Christ is called to live a very different path. We are in the world, but not of the world. If you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone, if you believe that he lived, died, and was buried, and came back from the dead, if he indwells you, no matter how old you are, you and I are to live differently than the world. And it's very difficult. I'm reading a book right now that's 
all my categories called Saving Leonardo by Nancy Piercy. And in this book, she gives a sample of, in context, postmodernism and modernism. Postmodernism essentially being that religion and moralities are values. They're not substantial. They have no truth. They're just a value. And then under the line, she explains modernity as science and industry. Science has the facts. And then she illustrates it in ways that we can start to grapple with it. She's talking to a chemistry student who came to Christ as a young child, but in college and on, she says, I operated on the assumption that what I learned in science and school was really true. While at church, it was kind of a support group that provides a nice story to help us cope with reality. A story to cope with reality, not truth. See the difference? She continues, how many other high schoolers operate with the same two-edged concept? Brett Kunkel of Stand to Reason devised a simple test to find out. Talking to a typical youth group, he first explained the difference between subjective and objective. To say something is objective does not mean everyone agrees with it, but only that you can know it for certain. We can know it's true or false. So if you're working on a complex math problem, we might not know what the answer is, but once we have it, we know there's a right answer. That's the right answer. We carefully define terms, Kunkel said, with this test. That guy's shirt is red. Objective truth. Then he says, red is the coolest color. Subjective. Two plus two is four. Objective. And on and on. Then Kunkel asks and says, God exists. 75% of the students said subjective. That's a value. What's true for you. What you want to believe. Not a fact. Not a truth. And then the last question he said, premarital sex is wrong. Only one teen, all but one, said subjective. Her point as she continues is the the world's changed. America, Western thinking has changed so dramatically. Most of us that are 25 and 30 and over are clueless how different the world is. Because there used to be truth and falsehood. Fact and fiction. And now it's so blurred, that's a value. The only thing that's factual is science and industry, which you can prove empirically. So we live in a very, I would say we're enveloped in darkness. And the only time we see a glimmer of light is when you come here, hopefully, when you're in FSM, 242 maybe, when you're hanging with your Christian homies, when you're in a study group or praying, the rest of the time we're in darkness, drowning in it. And as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 5, we are called to something different. Ephesians 5 in the big picture, we looked last week in chapter 5, the first six verses, and we saw in that passage that we're to imitate God. Kind of a crazy concept. Imitate God. What he says in that passage is, 
it is sacrificial love. This passage deals at, at large, at high level, with sexual immorality and sexual purity. And he says very clear in that passage that all those things, pornania, that large term, they're all unacceptable. The only right love is a heterosexual monogamous lifelong marriage. Everything else falls out of God's plan. So that's why you see we live in darkness. He continues in the text we're going to look at today to explain to us the incentives of living a righteous life. Remember, chapters 1 to 3 are the theological doctrinal basis on which we understand why we believe what we believe. Now we're moving into the practical application. How do I apply this to know that I'm in Christ? How do I know that I'm walking in the light, that I am the light? And if you have your Bible, we'll read verses 7 to 14 today and hopefully give us a little help. We're moving from not self-indulgence, sinful choices, but sacrificial love, sacrificial service to God. And now he writes, verse 7, Therefore do not be partakers with them, simply the above-mentioned immoral world. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are to live as light in Christ, and we're given very specific application in this section on what that means. First of all, there's a negative command. Look at verse 7 again. Do not be partakers with them. He, he leads with a negative command. Don't be partakers. Partakers, again, identifies with this above group of sexually and morally defined activity. Don't be partakers with them. That word occurs a number of times in our New Testament, but one of the more chilling ones is in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't be involved with both these at the same time. It's mutually exclusive. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about the issue. Are, are we to be separatists, isolationists, if you grew up or came out of an independent, fundamental, something hard shell sort of thing where you were, you were cloistered away? I get why people are attracted to this. We want to insulate ourselves from the world. But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 9 and 10 writes, I wrote you in my letter not to, not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. The differentiation is we live in a world that is enveloped in darkness, but we're also in a community of believers in Jesus Christ. And we are to act the same way in both contexts, but we have a different impact in, both con in different contexts. We can't leave the world. You can't be an isolationist and think you're living well. We feel that way sometimes. Maybe to simplify it, when Paul says don't be partakers 
you this. Association, not participation. You can associate with the world because in the commerce of life we're going to be in the world with those that are immoral and think differently and have different values above the line. But we're not to participate. It's the same thing we saw in Psalm 1. Some of us memorize that as little children. And what is it? You don't walk, stand, or sit. The motion is, is you can't miss it. You don't traffic in sin and then you, you, you loiter in it and then you hang out in it. You're part of it. We associate, but we don't participate is the message. God knows that you and I need incentives for godly living. It's not just don't sin, amen, end of, end of the book. That'd be easy. But he knows we need incentives. He knows we need to understand not only why, but how to live this Christian life in a dark world. The second command he gives us is a positive in verse 8, walk as children of light. First of all, don't be partakers with them, but walk as children of light. Look at it again. You were formerly darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of in, consist in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You were formerly darkness. There's been a dramatic change in our location. Darkness in the Bible, almost always, 99.99%, is a picture of evil, of clouding over, of shadowing, protecting sin, is where light exposes, light reveals, light shows. And so the two are juxtaposed from the very beginning. Darkness and light are the separation. Continues on through Scripture. We were darkened in our understanding. He's talking about the Ephesian believers in verse 8. You were formerly darkness. I remind you, if you have forgotten before you trusted Christ, you were formerly, I was formerly dark. He doesn't say in darkness. We were darkness. And if you, like me, go back to your before you knew Christ years and think on it very long, it's very disheartening. I can get in a very sullen and depressed mood when I think of how stupid I was before I knew Christ. Living in sin. Stupid decisions. Oh, to go back and not do those things. To haunt you as an adult. Yet, no, I'm forgiven. No, I have been absolved of that in Christ's work on the cross. But I can go to a dark place very quickly. Can you? Can you remember? You, Ephesian believers, were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Notice he does not say walk in light. He says you are light. It's an unusual comment. He's, he's explaining the idea that believers have been transformed. You were formerly darkness, now you're light. We might call it sanctification for a simpler term. We were once one way, now we're another. We can't stay in the world the way the world thinks. You young men and women, I beg you to hear me can't live in that world and walk with Christ. It's so hard. It doesn't get any easier as an adult. Unless we're connected to Christ's word, Christ's spirit, and Christ's peace. Then we have the support to live as light in a dark context. Sanctification is taking place. The English, New English Bible says, live like men who are at home in the daylight. Live like men who 
light by saying there's fruit of light. And that's in contrast to verse 10 where he talks about unfruitful deeds. So we have a simple comparison and contrast. Verse 10, for the fruit of light consists in goodness, righteousness, truth. Goodness, righteousness, truth. So after we're out of darkness and we're light, goodness before evil. Righteousness before unrighteousness. Truth before deceit and falsehood and lies. Think of your pre-knowing Christ years, how we lied incessantly. Maybe you didn't, but I certainly did. Lies are hard to keep up with, are they not? You can look at your parents and lie to them 15 times, and they know you're lying the 15th time, but you persist in it. We're formerly darkness. When we come to Christ, it's goodness. It's righteousness. Truth. The fruit of knowing Christ, being empowered by his Holy Spirit, and walking in Christ is that now I don't live in darkness. Now I'm actually light. And the fruit, we might say the demonstration, the way we see that is I'm concerned about what's good, what's righteous what's truthful not what's evil and sinful and unrighteous and deceitful and false so we have a negative command and a positive command and then Paul takes us back to a forward thinking now let's put this real plain and simple being transformed in our new identity requires more than living in darkness and coming once in a while to the light of this room or 242 or FSM or serving in the learning center or going to Nigeria or Peru or Slovenia or you fill in the blank digging a well in Sudan or putting an egg box sticker on your car all fine good important things do not make a Christian every time I hear of students or young adults going to Slovenia or whatever I'm excited I'm thrilled I, we have one of the easiest global missions alignments you'll ever do and you should make it one of your goals as part of fellowship to do a trip and you'll probably have to do two or three once you start but here's my tension we'll raise money and we'll go to these places and do good ministry but we'll never share Christ with a neighbor easier because we travel 3,000 miles and with a team of people lots of analysis could be done objective and subjective goodness righteousness and truth traffic everywhere not just when we're abroad doing good things sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like our sinful selves sanctification is the process we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like our sinful self. The problem is, most of us in this room have unconsciously cobbled together uh, people we admire. Maybe it's a, a Bible study leader, or a 242 leader, uh, a pastor. God help you if that's your goal. Uh, you know, you, you've got some super Christian woman you know, super Christian dad, father you know, some author that you love, and you say, if I was only like him or her in my faith, then I'd be living the Christian life. We cobble together this mosaic, and we think that's the composite of Christianity, then I'd be a good Christian, whatever that means. If we could erase that white marker board and put one word up there, Christ, the only person to live the Christian life fully and completely was Christ. 
He's your target. These good people help us in all kinds of ways. Don't sound like I'm minimizing that, please. But Christ is our model. We're becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like our sinful self. And here's the real meddlesome question. Are you and I any more like Christ today than the day we trusted him? Because he left us on this world for a lot of reasons. Paramount is our sanctification to become more like him. And that's what it means to be in Christ. Well, a third negative command, one positive, a second negative, now a third negative. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Participation is the word soon koinonia. You, we may know the koinonia groups of, uh, of a time gone by, fellowship groups. It means a sharing or an alliance with someone. And here he says, don't participate, don't fellowship, don't align, don't associate with the deeds of darkness. Instead, even expose them. Now, this is a tricky passage. Paul's talking about the body of Christ of the Ephesian believers, not this blanket going out into the world and pointing out all the sin. Listen to Dr. Harold Honer on this passage. Christians, by conducting themselves as children of light, expose the deeds of darkness. These deeds refer to other believers who are not walking in the light. Other believers, not the whole world. This is because only God can expose and convict unbelievers' deeds. Believers, on the other hand, can expose evil deeds among other Christians within the church. This is where the Corinthians failed. And you might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was such a sin that was unspeakable even among the Gentiles. The young man is sleeping with his stepmother, and the church did nothing about it. And Paul upbraids him for it. In the body of Christ, there are parameters and limits. The, the picture is here. Um, we're light in this context. And being a light as a believer in that context exposes sin. And also draws people to the light and draws them to repentance. Notice the phrase, it is disgraceful to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. As reading this over and over this past week, week, 10 days, it struck me, Christians have lost all shame. In fact, we're somewhat, I won't say proud in a bad sense, but we're somewhat secure in the fact that we can talk about anything and everything and nothing is shameful. The word shame is so thrown away by psychologists, Christian psychologists included, shame is a bad thing. I agree with that to a point. But there's some things we need to be ashamed of. Is there anything too disgraceful to speak of? Paul says there is. We shouldn't even talk about them. Yet we are, we're actualized, we're confident, we're mature. This is 2014, by goodness sakes. We can talk about anything. So the teenage angst movies with their vulgarity and humor and depiction of beauty are so skewed and yet we went not watching them 
Fifty Shades of Grey polls that show how many Christian women consume the books. We've lost shame. He explains it further in verses 13 and 14, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes light is visible. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And we've all seen the illustration done in Young Life camps. We've seen it in spelunking experiences. If you've gone into a cave, what do you do? You turn out all the lights in some context. It's best when you're in a cave or a cavern. And you've gone down to the bottom, and they have the power cut off, and they turn all your flashlights off, and you stand there starting to lose your balance for a second or two. And then if it's a Young Life camp or a, uh, some campus life, then they, they, they tell a story about being in darkness. And the one person turns the light on, and it's like, we can see. And the illustration is simple and irrefutable. You can't pour enough darkness to quench the light. One light dispels the darkness. Universal truth. You've seen the commercial for the eye vitamins we're supposed to take now that we're over 50, those of us, you know. Take these, you'll, you'll see 10 football fields if you take these vitamins, yeah. And, and they turn all the lights off, and the one candle, and the eye is an amazing thing. And you can see it. Well, the eye is an amazing thing, but it's darkness and light, not the eyeball. You can't pour enough darkness to quench one light. And Christ came as what? The light of the world. And this text tells us we are light. Light exposes sin. John Stott writes, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Here our former condition in Adam is graphically described in terms of sleep, death, and darkness, all from which Christ rescues us. Conversion is nothing less than awaking out of sleep, rising from the dead, being brought out of darkness into light, into the light of Christ. Is it any wonder we're summoned to live a new life as a result of the consequences? You were dead, you're alive. You were in darkness, you're now brought into light. You were asleep, now you're awake. Growing up, my father had a lot of sayings. Maybe your dad did too. I still hear them in my sleep sometimes. He had all these idioms and phrases he loved, and one of the ones that I hated as a child, I can hear him today as if he said the first time, turn the light off when you leave the room. And he would holler down the hall, turn the light off when you leave the room. I can't wait till you're all old enough to pay your own electric bills. Turn the light off when you leave the room. He would bellow. And of course, you know, no one ever admitted to leaving a light on. When I had children, I determined never to be like my father in some ways. And I remember when the words involuntarily came out of my mouth, turn the light off when you leave the room. I can't wait till you have to pay your own electric bills. And I go around turning lights off. Well, it may be good stewardship, and today you might even say it's sustainable and green. Hey, turn the light off for the green, you know. I would switch that admonishment and say, leave the light on wherever you go. If you and I are the light then we should be the light wherever we go not just when it's turned on with the flashlight here or in your small group 
or in your community or in your 242 or in your Bible study or in your FP, wherever it is, not just that one or two times a week the lights flipped on and you're now among friendlies, but we are in the light. We are the light. We are children of light. Jesus Christ said, you are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. It was true in Jesus' day in antiquity when a city was built on the Sea of Galilee hills in the so-called Decapolis areas and oil lamps would be in windows of different houses. You could see those lights from miles below at the Sea of Galilee. As we look at a skyline of downtown Nashville, Dallas, Seattle, Chicago on the shoreline of Lake Michigan, whatever it is, and we see the lights you can't hide that absent a power outage. And you and I are to be not only in the light, walking the light, but we are the light. We need incentives for living as Christ wants us to live, not just don'ts. Don't sin. Well, I got that, Lord. I need some help. Okay, I'll help you. Leave your light on everywhere you go. said it many many times God's word God's people God's spirit we need God's word the foundation the truth and men and women whether you're a teen or an adult you've got to decide is this objective or subjective if it's your value and what you think and what you want to believe that's what the world is, has won the war on or is it God's very word and it's true and reliable good and righteous that's your question nah it's not a question it's your decision the passage at the high level again is about sexual immorality and now we're kind of burrowed down in a small area of it looking at this how we live as light in a dark world even among the body of Christ that can be darkness can start creeping in on the way we view things no shame we believe the world's lies, and little by little, we're turning off our light, we might say. I'm not saying you should fight the world, but I am saying we have a position in Christ. C.S. Lewis writes, nature is mortal. We shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebula have passed away, each one of you will still be alive. Because you're immortal, made in God's image. So what? As I read the passage again and again and again, the one thing that haunts me the most is in verse 10. Look at it for just a moment, if you will. Where Paul says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You know, we've eliminated the notion of pleasing our parents. You certainly don't please the teacher. We certainly don't please authority. And if you're in your 20s and 30s, there's a sort of a, you know, there's sort of a tough position pleasing my employer. You have to please your boss. You better find a better job. Because this notion, this idea of pleasing someone has been ridiculed and mollified to, you don't please people. You're true to yourself. That's the world talking. That's above the line. Value, not objective truth. Paul's pretty clear. Learn 
pleasing to the Lord. Now, it's encouraging because we all know we don't please God the way we want to. And Paul says, learn. Learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Learn how to please Him. Do you wake up in the morning? Do you go to work? Do you face a decision in your medical practice, in your classroom, in your arena as an engineer, homemaker, double income, mom who works outside the home, do you make it your ambition to say, how am I going to please Christ today? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, therefore we have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Colossians 1.10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Notice then, bearing fruit of every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We please him by bearing good fruit in our work and increasing in what we know about God. This isn't a hammer. This is an encouragement. Learn what pleases your God. Goodness, righteousness, and truth please our Savior. Don't let the world teach you theology, men and women. They're winning the battle. But God's word hasn't changed. The question is, will you, based on what you know from Ephesians, your salvation was a gift that you couldn't earn. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you. He died for you. He accepts you. He's not mad at you. He forgives you. By trusting in Christ and Christ alone, he gives you a free gift called eternal life. The moment that happens, the Holy Spirit indwelt you. Paul goes on to say, he sealed you, call referred to it, for the day of redemption. Sfragizo. He put a seal on it, a guarantee, a promise. Nothing can break that seal. You are secure in your salvation. Now, how are you going to live? First three chapters, increasing in knowledge. Next three chapters, the practical application, the out, outflowing of our good work. And this is a big one. You and I live in a culture that has taken all shame away from sexual immorality, that calls everything evil good, and we wear it with pride, and we're supposed to choke it down and accept the world's view. I'm not saying fight the world. I am saying hold your ground on what you believe about Christ and the Word. Christ is eternal, not the world. Christ is eternal, not your friends' views at high school or junior high or college or post-grad or at the practice. Sure, it's tough, but the Holy Spirit indwells you. I think he's tougher than we let him be sometimes. Are you, am I, learning what pleases God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do love us, that you're not angry or disappointed or discouraged with us. Help us to get to the place where pleasing you is more important than pleasing ourselves. Where sacrificial love is more important than sinful choices. That serving ourselves is hollow and insatiable, but serving you gives life and meaning and joy. Help us to, when we do this to find joy in the motivation and to see 